Welcome back to the War Room. Ryan Ray here. As always, today our guest is Dan Good. But first, 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 we have moved the newsletter to Substack to make it so much easier for people to follow along. So we're new there. Um, if you didn't get transferred or whatever, apologies, but that's where the newsletter is. You can just go to warroommedia.com to find the newsletter. Talk about this show, a little bit of sports, some food, who doesn't love food, all kinds of stuff there. Go to warroommedia.com for all of the dispatches from the War Room. Okay, today's guest is Dan Good, who is a seasoned book writer, ghostwriter, journalist, and editor. He, he's held leadership roles at the New York Daily News and New York Post, and has also worked for NBC News, ABC News, and local outlets in New Jersey and his native Pennsylvania. Dan lives outside of New York City with his wife and son, and he is the author of the book, Playing Through Pain, Ken Caminetti and the Steroids Confession that Changed Baseball Forever. We'll link to all of this in the show notes, so be sure to check that out. But now... Let's talk to Dan Good. Dan, welcome to the War Room. How are you doing? Doing fine. How about yourself? Man, it is it's lovely here in Texas. It was a brutal summer, but now that's all abated and it feels feels quite nice. It's um it's almost California Western, you know, what I call Western California, beachfront California weather, almost. Not not quite, but good for us. Very nice. Okay, so let's get into it. Um Talk a little baseball. You had on uh, Jeff Fletcher the other day talking about um, uh, Otani. This is a little bit different feel, Ken Caminetti. Um, first off, why the book? Why now? He's been passed away for almost 20 years at this point, right? Yeah, it's been almost 20 years. It's uh, 2004 he passed away. You know, I just felt like this was the book that I wanted to read as a baseball fan. I just felt like... His story deserved more attention. I was always intrigued by him. Um, you know, this is just something that's been fascinating to me, his life, his ups and downs, his struggles. And I just always felt like there was more there. And, uh, you know, the timing of it, I, I started this book about 10 years ago. I put a lot of work into it. I didn't think it was going to take this long to bring it together. Um, so I was thinking, you know, maybe 2015, 2016 timeframe to getting it published, but it obviously took longer than that. But, um, you know, I just felt like his story still resonates. And I think it even matters more now, uh, looking at the way that our society views addiction, looking at at the way our society views trauma. Uh, there's a lot of um, perspective and insight that I think we can get from looking back at his life now through the lens of, of today's world and, and really kind of learn some things from his life that uh, I think were missed the first time around. So I, I just think that his story was always fascinating to me and I just felt like there was more there. And, uh, you know, after no one else is writing this book, I figured, why not me? Okay, so I am... Um... 37 years old, which means I'm getting to the age now where I'm beginning to realize that the sports stories that I grew up with, there's generation behind me that did not grow up with them. For a period of time, everyone knew everything that I knew, and then they knew stuff prior to me. Now I'm getting to the point I'm talking about people they are like, who, what, what happened? Okay, so let's, you talk about what's changed. Let me tell you a little bit of my perspective and then maybe unpack 
what I got right, what I got wrong. And then also what was going on in the nineties in baseball, because it, it's, it's a different world. I remember, um, you know, all of the, all obviously the McGuire Sosa stuff and the home runs and all of that and how crazy exciting that was. And then I remember, Oh wait, they're on steroids. Wow. In, in my dismay and this, how could you just loathing these people who were cheating this pure game? And then, and I think it's Dan Patrick. I can't remember, but I think Dan Patrick, um, I, I say, let it slip one day on his show years ago, said something to the effect of, yeah, we all kind of knew, but we didn't say anything. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. We've been crushing these guys for a long time, me included, because I all, I thought, they were all pure, and you told me they were all pure. Yes. So yes. what what happened in the 90s? And obviously, Kevin has got a large role in that. But what happened for the younger audience who doesn't understand this, this what, what six-year period of just pure craziness that went on? It's so interesting. And I, I feel the same way. I'm 38 now. So I'm, you know, right around the same age you are and, you know, see that from the same perspective. Uh, you know, at the time... It was so wholesome and so pure. McGuire and Sosa hitting the home run record, uh, you know, smashing past Maris's 61, um, you know, hitting home runs at a pace we've never seen before. Uh, Ken Griffey Jr., obviously, he's never been implicated in the steroid stuff. But, um, you know, there was a there was a purity in that, um, you know, after the baseball strike in 1994 that washed out the World Series, you know, and there was a lot of fan frustration at that point. You know, there were a couple of things that really brought fans back. There was Cal Ripken Jr.'s uh, game streak, and then there was the home run chases. And the home run chases were so exciting because, you know, here's a front row seat to history. This is something that's never happened before. You know, as kids growing up, this is the most exciting thing. You know, this chicks dig the long ball era, the steroids era of baseball. This was what was so exciting back then. Um, you know, you look at what Aaron Judge is doing this year and it's historic and it's special. And think of five other guys who are kind of in the same range that he is in terms of home runs. Uh, and that's what you had in some of those late 90s, early 2000 seasons. You know, in, in 98, it was an expansion year. There were the Diamondbacks and the Devil Rays coming into the league for the first time. So the pitching was watered down. You know, so there was kind of other factors. And there was some reporting at the time. It was, you know, talking about creatine and talking about players taking better care of themselves. You know, and there was this badge of honor, like, oh, these players really care about their physique. This is great. You know, when you see these articles now looking back and the same guys are interviewed all the time, it's Mike Piazza, Brady Anderson, Mark McGuire, Ken Caminiti, you know, and, and a couple others. And many of them have either faced whispers or accusations or um, admissions that they've used performance enhancing drugs. You know, there was a really fine line between uh, taking things over the counter to help yourself and eating better and hitting the weight room. And using steroids. And, and, and it's really difficult to see where that line begin and begins and ends looking back now, because, you know, there were so many players who were using that we don't even know about, you know, the middle infielders, the middle relievers, the fourth outfielders trying to make the team. There was a lot of those players that that were using that no one was paying attention to. And then you had other players like McGuire, uh, Sosa, um, you know, breaking records, Barry Bonds, Alex Rodriguez later. Um, you know, and, and I think that as these records kept falling, you, you started to say at the, at the beginning of it, it was so exciting. Then you kept 
saying like, why is this still happening? Like this is supposed to be a kind of a, you know, one-off when Barry Bonds hit 73 home runs in, 19, in 2001. You're like, okay, something's not right here. This guy is playing in a different level than he has been before. You know, he was a Hall of Fame player to begin with. I go back to in 1998, amid the McGuire-Sosa home run chase, Barry Bonds actually uh, became the first player to hit 400 home runs and steal 400 bases in his career. And it was against the Marlins. And he's looking at the reporters and there's almost no one there. And he was kind of making jokes about this, like, oh, you missed this. You know, you're so busy on McGuire and Sosa that you missed this huge historic event that no one's ever done before. The reporters were very uh, cozy about covering this topic. Um, you know, there was a bottle of uh, there was a bottle of a substance that was found in McGuire's locker, Andro, in, uh, in plain view. And the reporter wrote about it. And he was vilified. He was, you know, how dare you do this? How dare you besmirch Mark McGuire's good name? Um, you know, but th there were a couple reports here and there that popped out about steroids at the time, but they were kind of drowned out and forgotten. Uh, most of these uh, were glowing pieces about the greatness, the purity of these players, uh, how historic their records are. And it's easy. It's interesting to look back now and see you know, uh, reporters like Tom Verducci, who did some great reporting on steroids, you know, also writing these glowing pieces about McGuire for Sports Illustrated. So it's this balance. But I think at the time, the writers enjoyed the coziness. Uh, they enjoyed uh, having the front row view. I think that they looked at the idea that if they were to write uh, um, critical pieces, they might lose access and I think that uh, they didn't ask enough questions and they didn't dig deep enough. And this was the biggest story in baseball from that whole era. And, and by and large, the reporters missed it or, you know, willfully let it slip away. Yeah. And I think sports media as a whole, um, you know, as we've gone on and we're sitting here in 2022 now, it, it is even apparent, I think, today as a, as a non-mainstream media independent producer like myself, to yeah. watch how they cover certain stories and go, mm, if you say this, you might not get an interview, right? Um, and I'm in the interview business too, but obviously I'm not bringing on Kevin Durant or you know Mark McGuire. So I'm not bringing on those level guys. And so I don't know how I would handle that if I had that ability. But but you can kind of see that even today, it's still a problem. Uh, in, the, in the athletes now, whereas before they might have cut you out, now they actually just can flip the whole thing and have their own platform to then dog you too. <laughs> so it's really, it's really probably harder on reporters now if they're if they're based on uh, if, if their performance is based on getting these big interviews because they they kind of have to not tell all of the stuff. And so how do they? How should we draw those lines as um, media at large? It's a really good question, and it's delicate. You know, I think the. Uh, the media outlets of today don't have the resources and staff that they used to. They don't have those, um, you know, those uh, additional reporters you could throw at a story. You know, I think a lot of times when there's a beat reporter covering a team, if there's a difficult topic that they feel like they're going to lose access and connections for covering, you could send in somebody else to do the hard stories and you could handle the day to day. You know, but I think reporters uh, have done a really good job of finding that balance. You look at somebody like Evan Grant uh, covering the Rangers, and I think he does a really nice job of being critical while also being fair. Um, you know, and you've heard those stories here and there over the years of players like blowing up at a reporter for writing something they didn't like. And usually a lot of times it was, 
you know, let's let's uh, let's have it out. Let's talk it out. And then after that, it's kind of fine. Again, everything uh, goes back to normal. Um, you know, I think there's a good exchange there, but it's important for reporters to stick to that story, even if it's something that is going to be uncomfortable, um, because ultimately, you know, it's embarrassing when you miss the big thing, you know, the bigger picture and you're focused on games, 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 and you're missing hey, there's this huge scandal going on. I missed the whole thing. Like, that, that's not great. And I think that the media as a whole um, can do a better job of um, being mindful and, and continuing to dig even when there's opposition. And, and one of the issues, too, that happened during that time, a lot of players didn't want to implicate other players. Mm -hmm. You know, they didn't want to go on the record, and that didn't help. Um, you know, you had guys off the record saying, oh, this is a problem. It's like, do you want to go on the record and talk about this? No, I don't. I don't want to burn everybody. You know, and I think that's why Ken's admission in 2002 was such a firestorm because you finally had a player admitting to it, um, willfully admitted to it, voluntarily admitting to it, and not denying that it helped him. And in fact, you know, all but encouraging players who were on the fence to, to want to consider using because it helped him win the MVP award, and he wasn't hiding that. Yeah, so let's talk about his career. You mentioned kind of Bonds, who was a, um, I think everyone agrees, a Hall of Fame player before, and then obviously he goes to the moon. It would I mean, as, as a Red Sox fan, what Ortiz did in the World Series a few years ago was crazy, but Bonds, Bonds was crazy. His playoff runs, like it was like, okay, well, we're going to face him in three innings. So let's start thinking about it now. It was just, it was just crazy what was going on. But Kevin Eddie, let's talk about him in his career because um, he had a unique name. And so it kind of stuck, it kind of stood out when he made a, when he made a player or a highlight. And, and also, just, we should also mention that back then, this was the era of waking up, especially in the summertime as a kid, and turning on Sports Center, and you're watching the highlights for two or three hours, like the same highlights, because that's all you had. And so you might miss something here or there. And so if you were on a streak or something, you're getting a ton of coverage because the morning sport, the midnight sports center is playing in the morning. So um, but but his career, from what I remember, I mean, it, it seems like he he not that he came out of nowhere, but he was a, he was a good player. And then he became a just a just a, just a, a phenom, it felt like. Um, but later on in his career. Yeah, and I, I was drawn to baseball in a similar way. I remember watching Sports Center, and you'd you see your highlight. It'd be like on thirty five after the hour, and you watch the whole thing, and you'd be like, "All right, now I've watched it again. I've watched the whole thing. Now I've seen this two or three times." And it was neat that way. Um, you know, the Big Show was fantastic. I mean, it was such a great gateway into baseball. You know, you didn't have streaming. You didn't have. Uh, the ability to watch out-of-market games whenever you wanted. Uh, you know, when you uh, had a favorite team that was across the country, you might see them four or five times on TV a year. And you had to really plan that out and say, okay, now they're going to be on Sunday Night Baseball. Um, I loved getting those highlights, um, watching those highlights, and really recognizing Ken's ability through those highlights. You know, you look at his defensive talent and and as a defensive third baseman he was second to none he was the best defensive third baseman of his era we'll say late 80s to early to mid 90s during his window during his peak he was the best defensive third baseman in baseball um at least most of those years you know matt williams and terry pendleton were winning gold glove awards they were also great 
you know, I talked to Matt Williams from my book and, and he really said that Ken was the gold standard. And you go back and look at his stats, you look at uh, the video, you look at the plays he was making. His 1989 season was a defensive season for the ages. It was one of the better third baseman seasons on defense uh, over the course of a couple decades. You know, and he's playing on that hard turf in Houston, you know, really doing a lot of damage to his body, his knees and his back. You know, players really struggled with that. But he was so good at instincts. He was so good at understanding where the ball was going to go and putting himself in position to make the play. and that was a talent that carried him throughout his career. And on top of that, he had this cannon for an arm. This, he would just chuck the ball across the diamond and it allowed him to make plays that, uh, and get outs that a lot of players wouldn't be able to do, you know, being able to make the play and then make the throw. You know, there's that famous play uh, where he was with the Padres in 1996, you know, where he had torn his rotator cuff. He tore his rotator cuff. You know, he's diving. The ball kind of comes back at him uh, and he ends up rolling and on his butt in foul territory and throws the ball across the diamond to get the out, you know, and there was just plays like that all the time, you know, and because of the fact that he played with the Astros and because of the fact that he wasn't uh, a really good power hitter earlier in his career, he wasn't getting a lot of national attention. People weren't noticing how good he was because they didn't see it. You know, and then he finally goes to San Diego. He starts hitting home runs with the help of some substances and with the help of being in a better place in his personal life. And now suddenly he's a revelation. You know, people haven't seen him before. And this is something new and different and awesome. And uh, it was neat how the Padres fans and fans in general really um, came to appreciate him uh, defensively and, and what he brought to the table. And that was his bread and butter. I mean, he was a good power hitter at times, but uh, his his plan defense was the uh, the best part of his game. And I think the thing that he drew the most inner uh, success and inner um, uh, affirmation from. He also, we have the the substance abuse from a steroid standpoint, but he also substance abuse for a lot of other things as well. So he was a, a um, I don't know if tormented soul is the right individual, uh, right word, but he was struggling on all fronts, it seems. He was, and I think that's a good way to describe it. Um, you know, it's interesting to look at his ability on the field in the context of the fact that he was really struggling with addiction off it at the same time he was playing, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s in Houston, and then at the end of his career. And he was still a really good player. And it, it's, a, it's a shame that you know, we'll never know how good he could have been if he was able to stay, uh, stay clean and avoid, you know, drugs and avoid the struggles he had with drinking. Um, but he really did struggle with these things. And, you know, and that that's really, you know, you look at steroids as one thing, performance enhancing drugs is one thing. You look at the performance dehancing drugs that he was using at different points. And it was just a lot, you know, he was, he was really trying to self-medicate, um, emotionally and physically uh, for the pain he was carrying. And, you know, really, it really um, tore his life apart, you know, in the, in the second half of his life and in his career, it really, you know, brought an end to a lot of things. And uh, he struggled with that, but uh, it was, it was an undercurrent throughout his career off and on, and he'd have good seasons and he'd have difficulties and backslide. And uh, it was just sad to recognize the depths of it, because I think, you know, you look at what's been presented about him and you think that, you know, previously it was talked about how he had a drinking problem in, uh, in Houston earlier in his career. And it was a lot more than that. It was cocaine and a lot of other issues he was dealing with. And then you look later in his career and there's just a lot of 
you know, curious things happening. And it was, it was just, everything was too much. The steroids were too much. The drugs he was using off the field were too much. It all became too much. And, you know, it just, it tore his life apart. You mentioned earlier the culture, you have the the media culture, and then you have the player culture. And the player culture, this isn't uh, a slide on players. This is any organization that's tight-knit. You know, they're always going to rally the troops and protect their own. Um, but did that actually hurt Ken, maybe to prevent him from getting the help that he needed because you kind of have the circle the wagon mentality? Yeah, I'm, I, I... I've thought about that a lot too. Um, I think that there were guys, well-intentioned players and coaches and personnel who really tried to help him. And at the same time, the union will only allow for so much, you know, it was basically back then in the late eighties and early nineties, it was, if you can play, you can play. Uh, the drug policy was basically, you had to get uh, arrested. You had to fail a drug test in order to be into the program you know, so like Dwight Gooden was being tested, but Ken wasn't being tested, even though his teammates and, and team knew that he was having problems. You know, it, they couldn't just send him to, you know, they actually tried. In 1993, Art Howe pulled him aside and said, um, you know, we know you're having troubles. Uh, we'd love it if you could um, go get some help. You know, we can say that you had a hamstring pull. We don't need to tell everybody what the real problem was. Uh, but maybe you could take a couple of weeks and, you know, get your life straightened out. And he didn't want to do it. And, you know, he stayed in the lineup. They kept playing him. And, um, you know, I think with baseball back then, there was this idea of if you can play, you can play. And they didn't have any better options at third base. And he was still a good player. And I think you look past and say, oh, he's still showing up and doing his job every day. But um, I don't think that's good enough. And, you know, especially in the context of what we view today, I mean, players are taking time away for uh, mental health issues. Players are taking additional time away to, you know, get their lives in order. And I think that's great. You know, there's, there's so many things that are bigger than the game, as much as the fact that the game is a central part of everybody's lives. Um, but there's so much bigger than that. And, you know, there's more focus on the person, but, you know, his team tried his, his teammates tried, his friends tried. And uh, I think a lot of players carried that burden too of, I wish, I wish we had done something differently or done something more to help him. Yeah. And so going back to this, this era um, in the mid to early nineties, especially steroids um, from, again, from what I remember, um, you know, you would think of perhaps like a bodybuilder builder, or as the nineties go along, at least from my age group, maybe wrestlers um, as they started to pass, pass away because of steroid use. Um, and so what did folks like Ken or the other players think about steroids? Because it seems like a very risky proposition if you're going to take them. But I mean, I don't, I don't know the stats of baseball players who have died of steroids, but it's not many that I can think of, but there's a ton of wrestlers that have. So how do they navigate those streams? I think it's a balance. Um, for one, in Ken's case, at least at the early part of him using steroids, he had a friend helping him. He had a friend, Dave, from high school, a friend of his long time, who helped set up his program. And I think if you do steroids in the right way, if you're taking them at the right doses, cycling on and off, um, I, I'm, not, I'm not advocating for steroid use in any capacity, but if you're using them properly and under supervision and um, 
and making sure that they're from the right place, that they're manufacturing in the right place. I, I think you can avoid a lot of the issues and struggles that some of the wrestlers have faced with the overuse, um, you know, that, that roid rage, some of the other problems they're having, and some of the problems that Ken actually had later in his career. When he started getting steroids from other places, he started having those problems. He started, his body actually stopped producing testosterone on its own. He had to start getting into injections, and that was coupled with um, a lot of depression and a lot of other emotional issues he was dealing with. So he definitely dealt with um, a lot of the side effects of steroids. Uh, but earlier in his usage, he wasn't having those problems. And in fact, when uh, he had a shoulder surgery after the 1996 season, after he had been using steroids to get through the year, uh, his body was recovering on its own. You know, uh, I was talking to his physical therapist about that. And she was talking to me about basically how she told him, if you start using steroids during your recovery, you are liable to undo all of the surgery that was done. You could actually re-damage the shoulder and, and set yourself back and maybe ruin your career. So he was really on the mindset of, I can't use anything. So his body was still working properly then to recover. Um, but getting back to your question, um, I, I really think the key was taking these things in the proper doses, doing it the right way. Um, thankfully, we haven't seen a lot of players um, facing those types of issues. Um, but at the same time, I think that, I think that a lot of players, um, I think a lot of players were focused on just taking whatever they could to stay, uh, in the lineup to stay on track with what they wanted to accomplish on the field. Uh, they were looking past the maybe short-term or even long-term consequences and saying, I, I need I need to help myself right now. I need to get some power in my bat. I need to get a couple more miles per hour on my fastball. You know, you're, you're short-sighted. You're focused on here and now and not looking down the road, uh, which is not great, obviously. Um, but when there's so much money on the line, you're going to do anything you can to uh, stay in the lineup or stay on the team. Um, you know, and it's interesting too, looking at, how that era really picked up because we see Jose Canseco. Jose Canseco was really like the centerpiece of our ideas about steroids and baseball, but steroids had been in use before then, um, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s. Uh, Glenn Wilson was one of the players who was using steroids in the 80s, at least for one off season. He was an all-star that next year. I think it helped him a little bit. Uh, and even I was talking to Phil Garner for my book Phil Garner was somebody, the last person you would even think of considering using steroids. But after the uh, 1988 season, I believe it was, he had a back injury and he was trying to come back from the back injury. And he was actually uh, researching steroids and considering whether or not he should take these to help him get back on the field. He ultimately said, it's not worth it. I'm not going to do it. And he retired. And that was it. Uh, but when Ken actually started using and he, Phil Garner actually heard about it, uh, he confronted Ken and was like, hey, you really should think not think about using this stuff. This could be bad for you. Um, you know, I think he was somebody who saw the possible consequences that could come. But, uh, you know, I think with a lot of players, they're so focused on doing whatever they can, popping whatever pill, taking whatever substance they have to to stay in the field. And that was especially true during Ken's era. And it doesn't justify the substances he was taking. But I think it it provides context that, you know, if so much money and opportunities on the line, if you can get a contract to uh, 
you know, make sure your family's financially secure for the rest of their lives. Like, yeah, you're going to take that chance. Yeah. Yeah. And so that, that raises the question for me, which is um, the angels player who died, uh, what, two yeah. or three years ago. Tyler Skaggs. Yeah. yeah uh, he, they're, they're playing, uh, playing the Rangers in, uh, in town, if I remember correctly, when that happened. And, and when the story broke, you know, you're, I mean, if you follow baseball for a time, you're like, eh, maybe there's something going on here. And of course, the, understandably, the family came out and said, no, there's no way. And then, of course, you find out, obviously, that there was a way. Um, and, and so it, it's tough because you have this tragic loss of life that you don't want to diminish. Um, and then you have kind of the people coming out and saying, oh, well, how could this happen? And what's going on? And to your point, the, the frustration that I have is, there's a denial about what's at stake in trying to pretend that people aren't willing to do that when we see people do far worse for far less money on a daily basis. And so as a society, how do we handle those conversations? Because you, you, you don't want anybody to die. Um, and then, but you also go, well, listen, for tens or hundreds or whatever millions of dollars, people will do whatever it takes to secure that kind of money. So how do we have that conversation? It's tough. You know, when players aren't in the lineup, you're automatically ready to, you know, criticize them, boo them, be frustrated. Oh, you're soft. You're not playing. What's going on? Uh, We expect them to play and to perform and be great all the time. And the rigors of a 162 game season are very, very difficult. There's a reason why you don't see players playing 162 games a year anymore, you know, because they don't have greenies to pick themselves up, you know, by and large, these players don't have the capacity to be able year in and year out to, to play every day. And, you know, I think a lot of players were using substances of some kind to be able to help them stay on the field, to help them perform Um, as fans. You know, we have expectations when players fall short of those expectations, it's frustrating you know, and I think we need to be more understanding of the fact that uh, these players are human. You know, during the 90s, they were superhuman. They were doing things we uh, weren't expecting them to do. And there's a reason why players since then haven't really been able to do those things either, because they're not able to match what those steroid uh, supported players were doing. Uh, it was fun. It was a lot of fun to watch that era of baseball because you were liable to see something you've never seen before at any given time, you know, 500 foot home runs, uh, you know, pitchers pitching complete games, striking out 20 hitters, you know, just interesting things and curious things and fun things. And, you know, you don't see that as much anymore, but I I think there has to be a better understanding that, um, you know, these players are human, um, you know, and, and it's really tough as a player because you want to be your best and, maybe you're just not good enough. And that's, that's a tough thing to do. And when this is your whole life, baseball is your whole life. You have nothing else. You put everything of your life into this. And now you find out that you're maxed out here and you want to be here. You know, what's it going to take to get from here to here? And sometimes players just aren't good enough. And what do they have to fall back on? Um, Some of them don't have anything to fall back on. Some of them are well-prepared and adaptable to be able to do anything. They might even have professions and majors and, you know, and, and degrees and everything lined up in their life. And then other players don't, you know, Ken was one of those players who didn't have everything lined up. And, you know, I think, uh, you know, he talked to other guys and, um, you know, 
really think about what the end of his career looked like. And, you know, he wanted to keep playing, you know, eventually that got taken away from him, but, you know, he wanted to keep playing. And then, you know, after his career was over, it's like, okay, how do I get back? How do I, you know, get back in the game in some capacity? And it's, it's not easy. And, and, you know, it's really tough when your singular identity is as a baseball player, then to say, okay, now I'm not doing that anymore. What am I going to do with my life? You know, I'm just the guy who shows up and makes appearances and signs autographs. Like, that can only go so far. There needs to be something to pour inside of you uh, to keep you going. And, um, you know, he struggled with that. And a lot of guys do too. Yeah. It, it, it strikes me because in Ken's uh, era, um, and maybe you disagree, I don't know, but but stats and the numbers were huge. And of course they started blowing all the numbers out. Right. And so then you're like, wow, wow, this is, this is changing. And then of course we find out there's steroids, but then to your point, it's more than steroids. We start saying, well, actually, you know, back then they were using greenies and actually this was going on. And actually, and so today the stats, I don't know if they hold the same captivation as they did in the nineties. And so is that something that perhaps baseball can navigate to where um, players like Ken can thrive um, without having to do the steroids because there's other ways for them to get that next contract, get re-upped. One thing I think baseball could do is end the dead ball. Um, you know, if they, it's funny because everybody looks to put an asterisk on Barry Bonds' record, home run record, uh, single season end career, but specifically the 73 and say, okay, well, you know, you see this with Judge now. You know, oh, he's going to break the American League record. He's going to break Roger Maris's record. You know, Roger Maris is 12 home runs short of the actual major league record, and he's behind McGuire and Sosa. Uh, if the if Major League Baseball had used, we'll say, juiced or non-dead baseballs this season, I actually think Aaron Judge may have broken Barry Bonds's record. And then Major League Baseball could trumpet this. Oh, we have a clean home run record now. This is great. Uh, they, by having a dead ball, proliferated Barry Bonds's home run uh, record and maintained it for another season. We don't know when we're going to see another season like the one Aaron Judge is putting up right now. This is really special. Um, and I think I think baseball needs to celebrate that. I think baseball needs to celebrate, um, you know, the successes we're seeing, the great players that we're seeing today. Uh, and just to recognize that, you know, each era has their ups and downs. You think of 1968 as this pitching season. You know, you think of 1987 as a as an interesting outlier season too, with a lot of power. Um, there's all these different eras, 1930, 1931, you know, you have the world, the world war two seasons where stats are all over the place, you know, and you say, okay, this is the reason why I think that context is important, you know, so we can say, okay, the 1990s and early two thousands, the stats were inflated and bloated because of steroids. And now that the, the players are clean again, you know, now that we have a dead ball era of sorts today, uh, everything's down, you know, the batting averages are down, the home runs are down, um, you know, the pitching power is down, everything's down. So it's, it's interesting kind of recognizing that every era is reflected against other eras. Um, but I just, I, it's really tough because there is so much pressure. There's so much pressure to perform. And, you know, I think we all get into the capacity as fans of if a player's not performing, get them out put somebody else in, find somebody new, trade away. This guy's making too much money. Um, you know, he's, he's struggling, you know, bench him. You know, I, I think there's the reality that the mental side of the game deserves more attention. 
than it's gotten. It certainly gets more attention now than it did in the 90s, but um, it, it deserves more attention. You see players struggling. Joey Gallo, uh, he's he's really had a tough time with that. And you see his, you know, it on his face. He's, you know, getting booed. And, you know, Aaron Hicks is another one, too. He's, you know, dropping balls in the outfield. And you're like, okay, this is wearing on them. This is more than just, you know, you're a professional baseball player. Take it. You know, because I think that's the way we always look at it of like, just put up with it. It's it's it is what it is. Um, but I think there's more there. I think we need to have some compassion. Obviously, these players are well paid, but, you know, there's an emotional side of the game that uh, that goes pretty deep. And I, I, I don't think as fans, we give that enough focus and we just focus on performance and numbers and nothing yeah. else. Well, I think it's tough because I'm not sure that we as a society really have a good idea of what sports is supposed to be. And so as you start thinking about, you know, is it entertainment? Uh, but then there, it's not PlayStation because these are real people. Um, you know, how far can you boo them? Should you talk about them like, hey, trade them or not? And, and I'm kind of open to a lot of different thoughts on this because it's not quite clear. And then part of what we've tried to do, um, and I remember, just get my old man stick out here. You know, when I was growing up, that's not the way we played. Or that's not the way that this game is. Well, if you go study history of any of these sports, you realize that the game, insert date here, is not the same game that was 10, 20, 30 years ago. And so we even kind of have this thing of we're trying to pretend as if we're always playing the same game. And that's not even true. And so we don't, we, it's not, it's not clear to me what sports, as a sports fan, what sports actually are other than entertainment. Um, and so then, but then with entertainment, then you start asking these other questions about the players and what their responsibilities are. And so I don't think we've really, I don't, I don't know how to have that discussion, but I don't know how we tackle that issue because there, there I mean, to, if you take NFL for half a second and to try, try to argue that the NFL today is anything like the 1982 NFL, it's just not, it's just a different game or basketball or baseball or any of this stuff. And so how do, is there a way, do you have a way to handle that conversation and how we approach it? It's a tough one. I, it is really tough to, to look, you know, I always look at it that way, too. You know, you could look at baseball before the DH. You could look at baseball, um, you know, this this 10th inning second base runner thing is weird. I'm not really a fan of that. Uh, they're taking away the shift, you know. OK, great. I, I guess. I don't know. Uh, we well, hold that. on. Let's talk about the shift for half a second here. Because <laughs> the shift, I, I the shift is one of those things where um, if you can't hit opposite field, then you should be penalized, right? Yeah. I, don't, yeah. I really don't understand the frustration of the of people who hate the shift. I mean, bunt the ball. Like, yeah. just do something. If you hit it opposite field a handful of times, the shift goes away, and then go back to pulling. I, I, I don't understand this argument. What am I missing? Yeah, I don't know either. It's strategy. It's defensive strategy, being able to put your players in position to get the other person out because they're not hitting the ball the opposite way. They're not pulling the ball a certain way. They're not finding gaps. Um, I, it, it is, it is strange that whole argument and the frustration. I really think baseball is looking at that as a bandaid to fix the runs problem and say, Oh, if we put guys in the regular positions, we're going to have more runs. Yeah, maybe, but like, it's kind of cheap. Um, <laughs> it's like, it kind of takes the ball out of the defensive uh, team's hands and says, okay, you know, you don't have control to be able to put your players wherever you want to. Now you have to align them a certain way. Eh, I, I don't really see the frustration and backlash and anger about the shift. And I don't think 
banning a shift or taking it away is going to really solve the underlying problems. I think it's just a band-aid. Well, and I would say this is that that would be, I think, a time where we could make the argument, you're getting paid $25 million a year, hit the ball at the opposite field. Yes. Like, yes. That's a fair argument to make, right? Take like, some extra BP. You know, if players in high school and college and the minor leagues are learning these things. Right. You know, I think players at the major league level should be able to hit the ball the opposite way. Um, you know, if they can't, I'm sure that you can find somebody else who can. Maybe it actually provides more value to a different player, um, right. you know, who isn't getting as much of a look. If they can, you know, hit spots on the field and, and, you know, get the first base. I mean, that's, that's a powerful thing. Yeah. But, but these things, I think also just go back to my, my point earlier about the eras, the more radical shifts you make to it, the the quicker it is to get away from the, the stats based baseball. And I'm not opposed to that per se, but it's, I think it's just a little bit misleading. It's not the same game that it was. And so getting rid of the shift, you'd say, well, this guy hit during the shift era or this guy didn't hit, you know, and so yes. it changes the discussion. It kind of makes the game a little bit more, um, I don't know, nuanced or yeah, anything. no, definitely. I mean, we even see that during the wild card era. You know, mm-hmm. the wild card era came into effect during our, you know, mm-hmm. embracing baseball mid nineties. You know, you could look at the good and the bad of it. Um, I ultimately see positives in the one wild card. You know, when you have a team like the nineteen ninety three Giants who won one hundred three games and don't make the playoffs, you know, there's a problem there. That that team should be in the postseason. Um, but now we see this system where all these different kinds of teams are making the playoffs. Some of them are in third place. You know, that's kind of strange to me. So there's the balance there. The DH is another one. Um, you know, now pitchers aren't hitting anymore. You know, there's all these little things that are changing here and there. And it's it definitely you could definitely look at it and say, OK, this isn't the game of, you know, yesterday. This isn't the game of the 70s or the 80s. Um, you know, and, and and it's not, you know, you look at um, the, the TV ratings from the 70s on some of these games and everybody was watching and now everybody's watching everything. They're watching some other stuff. They're watching basketball. They're watching football. They're watching reality TV, anything. Um, you know, the game constantly changes and evolves. Um, you know, I think we look at our era through rose colored glasses and look at how great it was or how fun it was. And I certainly do for the 90s, but it's it's really tough. And, you know, it's tough to measure different eras against other eras and try to see what was better. Uh, I mean, I, I'm biased. I feel like ours is better, but it's, you know, the game just evolves. It's different. It's constantly changing. Well, and I think the other thing that's changed is um, fans' loyalty to the teams. You know, I, I tell my, I've got four kids, my oldest is 14, and, and my policy is quite clear. If our team's not any good, we're not going out of the way to carve out three hours to watch them. You know, now if, you know, if they come to town, we might go watch a game, but we're not going to be regular, regular attenders of uh, television for a bad team. There's just other things to do. And, you know, it's not like you're saying in the 90s where you only get four or five chances to watch them. Watch me night. Okay, well, if nothing's going on, um, we're not going to make a special trip. And I think that's also changed is that, you know, organizations maybe historically could have gotten away with being bad for longer because there was less options. Well, now you, you can't. And so um, fans aren't maybe as, I don't know if loyal is the right word, but there's just, to me, it doesn't make sense as a fan to continue to support an organization that's not trying to put on a good good product, right? So how do you get them to change? Well, don't show up anymore. So I think that's also tied into um, this era where is in the nineties, you know, we were probably a little bit more loyal to our, to our teams as, as a society. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. 
Um, there's so much more information available to us as fans now than there was then. You think of minor league players coming up in the system. You know, back then you might see a little notation in the newspaper or a magazine about their stat line from a couple weeks ago. You know, now we're watching their highlights on any given night. You know, you can see where the where the system is aligned, where, you know, the struggles are. You can look at the successes uh, in real time. You know, you can see what fans are complaining about. There's so much more, uh, there's so many more touch points to be able to be heard as a fan or to, um, you know, get involved as a fan uh, than there were years ago. But I do think that changes the game because, you know, you could watch today's game whenever you want to. You don't have to watch it live. You know, before you had to set your VCR, you had to time it out. You know, if you were in home, otherwise, you know, Sports Center is your only way of seeing the highlights. You know, Sports Center is irrelevant now because you get on Twitter in three seconds to type in. I was looking for some NFL clips this morning. I just typed in the, the team's name, and there's the clips of the of the important parts of the game. And actually, if I went to the YouTube, if I went to YouTube, I think the NFL has already published like the recaps of all the games. I go watch in five minutes the whole yes. Well, all the important plays more than I would have gotten from sports center. So, so yes. yeah, so all, all of that's changed. Okay. Uh, I want to get back to Ken here just for a few minutes with our remaining time. Um, obviously his life um, at the end is a, is a tragic display of um, just what can addiction can do. Um, so before we get to that moment, let's talk about the big release, him coming out. I, I remember, it's funny. I remember where I was in the car when that happened. I was driving, you know, somewhere and I remember coming on um, ESPN radio, Ken Caminati has come out like, whoa, 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 what's yeah. going on here? Again, because yeah. in our era, this was a huge, if you like sports talk radio like I did, huge topic always. What's going on? What's real? What's not? And so I remember where, where I was when this came out. And it was like, wow, it's all true. <laughs> you know? Or maybe it's true. Or maybe he's lying to cover someone else. Like a wide array of emotions. And so what compelled him to come out? For a lot of different reasons. Uh, the biggest one was that he had gone to rehab after the 2001 season. He had gotten arrested in a Houston hotel room um, and facing a drug charge. He went to rehab. He went to do two different rehab facilities and did a lot of work there. And through that work, you know, he was really taught that the truth can set you free, that you have nothing to hide, you know, that you need to live your life honestly and openly. And that was one big thing. And the other thing is he wanted to prove to everybody, to teams, to people in baseball, to his ex-wife, to everybody, you know, that he was walking on the straight line, that he was doing the right things, that he was, you know, turning the corner. I think he really saw an opportunity to, you know, get back in the game again in some capacity to, you know, to repair his reputation. Uh, so early in 2002, he had been contacted by a producer for CNNSI who was interested in doing a story about steroids and baseball. And they thought that Ken, as somebody who since has since retired, uh, somebody whose body changed quite a bit from, you know, 1987 in Houston to the mid uh, to late 90s, that maybe he was somebody, you know, and, and given his his drug issues as well, that he was somebody that, you know, maybe connected to steroids. And they asked him if he would be interested in sitting down for an interview. And he said, I have nothing to hide. You know, I'm at this motorcycle rally in Nevada. Come on out, bring a video camera. I'm happy to talk to you. So he goes and does this interview at a hotel in Vegas uh, above this motorcycle rally and tells the CNNSI producer, among other things, that I use steroids during my career. Huge, huge thing. This had never been said before by a marquee player. This is a huge deal. You know, and um, 
at the time CNNSI was getting ready to shut down. It was shutting down in May of 2002. So they said, all right, this is a really big story. Let's hold this. Let's give it to Tom Verducci. He can report it further. So Tom Verducci goes and meets Ken at his house in Texas and does a subsequent interview and, uh, you know, talks about a lot of the same things that the CNNSI producer, uh, Jules Bailey, talked to him about. And at the time that Tom was still reporting out this story, Jose Canseco was doing an interview with Jim Rome and talking about how 85% of players are using steroids. And I'm going to tell all in this book that I'm writing, but he's not actually admitting to anything himself. He's not saying I'm using steroids, just a bunch of players are using, and I'm going to expose the whole thing. So a week or two after that, uh, Ken's article hits newsstands, and this was a firestorm. This changed everything because it finally said the emperor has no clothes. It, it opened Pandora's box. Baseball couldn't hide from it anymore. You know, now you have Washington. Now you have Senator John McCain weighing in, looking at this, saying we need to police this. We need to get involved. Uh, and it really forced baseball's hand to uh, agree to some level of testing between the Players Association and the league. And as they were going through the, their negotiations that summer, they decided, all right, we're going to agree to a preliminary testing program for 2003. If the players test positive at higher than a 5% level, we will you know, inst institute uh, further uh, testing procedures. Of course, they test above that level because the players weren't ready to give up the juice. So more <laughs> the players tested positive. And then we have the system that, you know, the start of the system that we have today. So I, I really brought a lot, a lot of reforms to the game, but it was a massive thing. And it, it really dominated the news cycle. I mean, this was leading Wolf Blitzer on CNN. This was leading, uh, you know, all the sports uh, radio shows, all the sports networks. Um, you know, Ken's story was big news. I mean, he was on Dan Patrick and Jim Rome talking about it himself. Uh, it was just a massive, massive thing. And it was a huge story. And uh, just to have somebody talking about it was a big, big thing because it just opened up that that secrecy, opened up that that, uh, you know, that layer of, uh, you know, protection that baseball had had over the course of the past few years. Yeah, I think I remember the Jim Rome interview too. Now that you mentioned that, because I was listening to Rome all the time back then. Yeah, um, man, maybe I, I I can't remember. I remember them talking about it, but yeah, I forgot about that. But was there a more hated man in America than Jose Canseco during that time? Like <laughs> that dude, <laughs> he was getting trashed by everyone, and he was probably closer than most. That's the thing. You know, at the time, it's like, oh, this guy's a clown. Like, there's no way he's accurate. There's no way he's just making stuff up. And then his book comes out two years later. And it's the same thing. You know, oh, this guy's full of it. There's no way that Pudge Rodriguez, Juan Gonzalez, mm -hmm. Mark McGuire, uh, all these people are using steroids. There's no way. Rafael Palmero, you know, Rafael Palmero wagging his finger at the congressional oh, yeah. hearing. You know, uh, that's that's that image that sticks with you. And then he tests positive and you're like, what's going on? You know, it's Jose Canseco was more right than he was wrong. And I think that he, despite having an ax to grind, and I think you look at it through that context, um, you know, he was, he was mostly accurate and he's one of the few with Ken, one of the few players who's really come forward and, and given a, an account of any kind of this era that was even partially accurate and true. I think a lot of guys have come forward and said, Oh, I tried it for a little while. I don't know how it helped me. Jose was one of the few players like Ken who just said, yeah, I used it. It helped. It was good. That's why I kept using it. Like this stuff helped me be a great player. 
yeah it, it's it's i'm sure there's some 30 for 30s or something on there but this you you saying all this it just it, it sparks so many memories so okay um let you go with this one what would be the one question that you would like answered about ken's life that maybe during the book you found go god i really would like to know his thought or what happened here i would sadly i'd like to know more about the trauma that he endured as a kid um you know i think that was at the center of his addictions and it was something that i spent years trying to uncover uh, more about and and make sense of and that was really difficult um i would i would be interested in learning about that i would really be interested in learning about his outlook and his approach because there were so many different points in his life that i wish he had recognized the way that people felt about him. You know, at 2003, uh, he was invited back to Petco for the closing ceremony or for the, uh, it was for the, the, the Padres stadium in 2003, they were closing, they're moving to the new stadium in 2004. And he was invited uh, to this event and he was having a panic attack beforehand because he was worried how people were going to react to him. And, you know, he got a standing ovation. It was such a proud moment for him. And uh, it was the queue that was closing, not Petco. And um, and it was just such a proud moment for him. And I, I just wish that there were times that he recognized that people felt the way they did about him, the, the way that people loved him and adored him, the way that the fans felt, the way that his teammates felt about him. You know, there's a reason why there's so much sadness and so many heavy emotions around him to today. And it's because people really, truly cared and loved him. And uh, I, I think that really resonates. But I, I would have loved to have, you know, learn more about that. I would have loved to learn more about just his approach at the plate, his approach in the field. You know, luckily he was interviewed about these things, but just trying to make sense of it, you know, trying to make sense of his emotions, the things that he's going through as he's like moving up through the minor leagues, you know, and, and being left behind and left to, you know, stagnate in double A, um, the slights, you know, missing out on gold glove awards and finally having to leave Houston go to San Diego to win them, um, you know, winning the MVP and, you know, feeling not quite worthy, you know, because it's a team game and here he is being honored by himself. I think that was a heavy burden for him. There was just so much interesting uh, little wrinkles to his life. And I have so many questions I want to ask him. I wish I could uh, just, it's tough knowing that he's not here and knowing that um, you know, in this book, there's a lot of people doing talking for him. And I wish I would have been able to ask him more questions myself of what his life was truly like and, and the emotions he had. Okay. And of course, we'll link to the book, Playing Through Pain, Playing Through the Pain in the show notes. Um, where else do you want us to send people to? I'm on Twitter, uh, dgood73. Uh, I have a Substack page as well. Uh, I post there occasionally. Uh, I think it's good stuff. Uh, substack.com. Um, no, the book is the book is available wherever books are sold. Um, Amazon is the most popular, but there are other sites. You know, you can buy local, buy your local bookstore. Um, you know, pick it up anywhere, any format. I'm just happy that people are um, embracing the book, reading the book, and learning more about Ken. As I like to say, go ahead and buy the Kindle. So when you're at the beach, you don't get sand in the book, you know. Yes. Then when, you're, when you're at home by the fire, you want a good hardback. Uh, but when you're in the train, maybe you want a nice paperback. And listen, when you're like working out, what better than an audio book, right? So go ahead, get all copies so you're ready for all situations. 
all of them. (laughs) (laughs) Dan, thank you for your time. We'll link to all of that in the show notes and listeners. We'll talk real soon. Thank you so much. Okay, that is a wrap for today's episode. Hope you enjoyed it. Go to the War Room newsletter at uh, warroommedia.com. Get in the conversation. What did you think? Do you remember Ken Caminetti coming out and confessing that he was a steroid user? What did you think about the 90s? All kinds of stuff to talk about there. Love to hear your input. That's at warroommedia.com, and we'll talk real soon.